Hi, I'm Rahul Maheshwari. I'm halfway into my third year of my internal medicine residency, and I found that I really enjoy teaching. I'm at the tail end of my fellowship interviews. I'm applying to nephrology, by the way, and I've started thinking about how to also develop a career in medical education. I'm reminded of all the role models I've seen over the last eight years, educators and leaders who've guided me, and I wonder about how they got here, how they've made careers in this ever-changing field of education, and what kind of tips they would offer to somebody like me who's just getting started. Welcome to the second installment of 4AM series with the American College of Physicians on Career Paths. Today, we'll be talking about careers in med ed. Med ed is such a huge heterogeneous field. I just want to teach. I want to teach. The beauty of academic medicine is that you can do so many things with your career. There will come a point where you will get promoted and then you'll be sitting there like, well, now And so to be okay to sit with that uncertainty um, and just to be open to what comes your way. I thought that being a clinician educator looked a certain way. I thought it looked like the people who stood in front of the room. That's Dr. Kimberly Manning. She's currently a hospitalist and professor of medicine at Emory University. Old white men who seem to have an endless fund of knowledge, right? And so that did not look like, I didn't see myself in that. And so here were these students saying to me that I had had this tremendous impact on them. She was telling me how she got into med ed in the first place. She had just been inducted honorarily into AOA. At that time, she was still a resident, and she really didn't think of herself as one of those people she describes who stand at the front of the room. It was at the ceremony where the students who nominated her spoke about why they chose her. And the last thing the student who was speaking said was, she looked me in the eye and she said, I do not know what you are going to do in the future, but whatever it is, it should involve medical students and learners. And I was like, wow. And that was the day that I said, well, shoot, maybe I should uh, do something where I am, I'm around learners. So that following year, I did a chief residency and um, it was an awakening. It was only at the end of her chief year that it dawned on her. She was going to pursue a career in med ed. I want to be with medical students. I want to be with residents. And even then, I didn't know what medical education looked like. I just sort of knew that I would go to a job where there were residents and medical students around, affiliated with a hospital, and I would sort of show up and teach. <laughs> that's sort of what I thought. Um, that's about all I knew in 2001 when I started my first job. Listening to her just trying to figure it out herself just goes to show the ambiguous nature of medical education. It can kind of be unsettling for those who are just getting started in it. Med ed is such a huge heterogeneous field. We'll let our second expert introduce herself. Hi, my name is Grace Hong. I'm a hospitalist at Beth Israel Deaconess and an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. My passion is career development. And she's also editor-in-chief of MedEd Portal, a journal that publishes educational resources. You know, the first thing I would say is looking at other people, you assume that they got there on a very linear, deliberate path. And I find that most people had a very circuitous route to where they are. And a lot of that was related to being there in the right time or serendipity or just sheer luck. And Dr. Huang's own career seems to have started in a similar way, serendipitously. I noticed that I was really opinionated about surveys. I always found something to critique about them whenever I was doing a survey. And she found that there were always educational projects that needed help with survey design. Maybe I should study about survey design and think about survey science. How does one word questions and figure out what scales to use? And so she followed her curiosity and embarked on a self-study, 
acquiring skills that became quite useful to other people. And that allowed me to build this very particular niche in survey design that became the reason why I was asked to give talks. And that led to a multitude of opportunities. And so in a way I would never have anticipated, I became the local survey person and that parlayed into multi-institutional opportunities. I think a lot about these serendipitous experiences, how Dr. Manning pursued MedEd seriously only after her own student identified it for her, and how Dr. Huang somehow got into this through survey design. In some ways, medical training is so regimented and linear, with medical school, residency, fellowship, it feels so foreign to not have a specific plan and just go with whatever comes your way. I would say that's still true, that I don't have a five-year plan, and it's totally okay to be kind of pushed along by the current as long as you recognize the current is headed towards the rock. Now that we've met our discussants, Dr. Manning and Dr. Huang, I asked them for advice on careers in medical education, and they gave us four main tips to focus on. First, where do we start? Let's say we trust ourselves enough to know that we're not headed towards the rocks, as Dr. Huang puts it. Aside from just staying afloat through the currents, how do we get started in such a broad field? When I first joined faculty, I just wanted people to like me. And so people would ask me to do things, and I would say yes to everything because I was so flattered. But then I started to realize that it is actually okay for me to start to curate my own interests. Dr. Manning speaks to a common situation we've all found ourselves in. To get our foot in the door, we usually take whatever opportunities come our way and then eventually narrow over time. But there can be one huge pitfall during this initial development stage. I actually think about not following through as one of those career killers, probably too harsh a term. I mean, I have so many of my own personal stories of not following through on things, but I think what becomes dangerous is getting a reputation within your institution as someone who doesn't follow through. You have to take reliability to the next level. Being somebody who routinely is known as a doer and someone who will follow through is probably, in my mind, one of the predictors of success. I've definitely been in positions of taking up projects to get a seat at that table. And I've also seen where dropping the ball has set me back. But there's only so much time in a day. How do you prioritize what you follow through on? What tasks are higher stakes than others? So it might be a lit review, or it might be go meet with this person. Those are the kind of things that can be stated so visibly and so publicly that those things ought to be followed up on. And other things that come up in meetings are more nebulous and can be accepted if they don't get carried out to their fullest. Be like, oh yeah, think a little bit more about this project and so forth. I think people can understand if that doesn't go through because it's a lot more vague. So far, we've talked about how medical education is a heterogeneous field and how our two discussants serendipitously started their careers. We learned that it's okay to be taken up by the currents and to say yes to opportunities that come up so long as you can follow through. But I can feel like I can see myself being excited and carried away about so many different things. I asked if there was a framework that can help filter these opportunities, a sort of guiding North Star. This leads us to tip number two, the educational mission statement. Some of this is around the concept of defining an educational mission statement for yourself. It allows you to have a lens through which you may decide about opportunities that come your way. So how do we create one? Dr. Huang gives us three steps to doing so. And it's fairly straightforward. You do it by asking yourself a series of questions. First, what drives you? What topic or topics 
are you passionate about? And you'll often find that there's no rational reason why people are passionate about certain things. Sometimes it is driven by personal experience, but sometimes it's just like, I'm fascinated by novel oral anticoagulants. Kind of like how Dr. Huang loves survey design. And then starting to think about the second piece of it is like, who do I, what learner group do I like to hang out with most? And that's the second question. Who do I want to teach? Students as learners bring their own energy and their own curiosity. Uh, residents as well have a different flavor. And the third thing is, what are the outcomes that I care most about? And this is the last question you have to ask yourself. For people that are interested in clinical topics, it may be that they want to see X. Or uh, if you're interested in a topic in medical education, like health disparities or about wellness, what outcome am I driven for? And these are essentially the three ingredients for an educational mission statement. This whole concept is so useful. You can use it as a filter through which you pass all these other opportunities. For instance, let's say someone decides that they want to invite you to be on a committee. You want to pass it through your educational mission statement and decide, oh, is that something that's going to align with where my mission is or my North Star? That helps you sort of decide whether it's a yes or no. And this whole thing kind of reads like your personal problem representation or a PICO statement. Of course, there are times when an opportunity might come your way that was not a part of your mission and ends up being quite meaningful. But having this North Star can help guide us. And so just in case you missed it, here it is one more time. These are essentially the three ingredients for an educational mission statement. One is uh, what I want to do is teach about this topic. The second piece is to this learner group. And the third piece is so that I can enact this kind of outcome or success. So that's one way in which I help people think about finding a niche, finding some focus to all the things that you can do in academic medicine. I think the challenge is, how do I even get those opportunities in the first place? And once I get an opportunity, how do I make sure I do a good job? This leads us to tip number three, the importance of coaches, mentors, and sponsors. Dr. Manning breaks it down in a way that I've just never heard before. Okay, Rahul, I'm going to break this down to you through hip-hop music, okay? All right, so here's how I think of it. So I would like to be an MC, and I would like to rap. And so a mentor comes along and says, hey, I am going to help you become a rapper. This person has rapped before. This person has, you know, a few CDs out and they help me with my cadence. They talk to me about, you know, my ciphers and my bars and how the rhythm should go. And they work with me and I start to develop something. Now, then I get connected to a coach who is the person who gets in the booth with me. And as I'm rhyming, they are watching me rhyme and they say, run that back, do it again. Run that back one more time. Mm, that was too slow. Mm, that was too fast. And with practice, that person is watching you and giving you feedback. That's your coach. And then, and the sponsor is the person who, once you have cut your demo, they take your demo tape and they go hand it to the people that need to hear it so that you get signed. Because you need all of those things. So in medical education, if I say I want to be a medical educator and I break it down and say I want to do undergraduate medical education, and I want to teach physical diagnosis. This is just a conversation I had with a mentee recently. All right, cool. So then what do you need to do? What, what do you know about teaching physical diagnosis? Who is doing it at your institution already? What are the standards? Have you looked at the Stanford 25? What, what things do you know already, right? Then after that, hey, go somewhere and teach physical diagnosis and have a coach watch you and say, mm, the way you taught that was pretty good, but you could do this differently. Mm, that was a little complicated. That was a little long-winded. And then you tell me, and I say, oh, well, you know what? Who do I know? 
around the country who does physical diagnosis medical education for undergraduate medical education. Who can I reach out to to put your name out there so you can be on a presentation, a workshop, a paper? That's really how it works. And if I had known that, if I had known that when I first came out of residency, I would be so far ahead and not just further ahead in accomplishments, but in joy and fulfillment. I absolutely love this. I think we're so used to using mentors as a catch-all term, but I'm realizing that we underappreciate the specific role of a coach, that person who's in the booth with you. Dr. Manning gives an example of one of her own coaches, somebody who was pivotal to her teaching career. A man named Dr. Rick Blinkhorn, my chair of internal medicine, and he changed my life through carefully curated feedback. He watched me teach. I remember him teaching me to think about who's my learners, and he would tell me if I aimed right to my learners. Was I too high? Was I too low? Was I self-deprecating? Was I um, not clear? So it's such a valuable thing that I still do now. When I have residents on service, I give really explicit feedback. I'm like, well, when you were teaching this, like you started talking too long and you lost me. Um, this you should have probably like taken out a piece of paper and brought us to a counter and drawn a picture. Uh, so my, my, my chair, he taught me that. These stories and go to show how important the informal day-to-day coaching can be. But what about formal training? This leads us to tip number four. Do you need formal training for a med ed career? To answer that, thinking about what type of educator career you want can help you think about what type of training you need. And so to take a quick detour, let's talk about the different kinds of clinician educators. There's obviously a lot of overlap in individuals' med ed careers, but one way to think about it is that you could have an affinity for either innovation, leadership, and or scholarship. In innovation, these are the individuals who love to take new ideas and figure out ways to deliver that content and roles where developing curricula and getting skills to develop curricula are well-suited for them. Leaders have a desire to enact a vision. And then lastly, there's a lucky category of individuals who love to measure things and think about things in a research mindset. It is important for those individuals to be fed with research skills and to put out the kind of original research that helps us understand the science of medical education. Thinking about which bucket speaks to you and your goals the most can help you decide if formal training makes sense for you. To be honest, it's easy to get complacent and not go out of your way to further develop your skills. It's especially hard since nobody is requiring you. I would say that intuition in how to teach and how to assess is only going to get you so far. People do remarkably come you know, or organically with these teaching skills that are fantastic, but I do feel like they hit a ceiling. The idea of potentially hitting a ceiling really requires some self-awareness. Clinical educators have to not only focus on teaching, but also recognize if they need to enhance their own skill set and if that needs to be through formal training. One of the more accessible of these are professional or faculty development programs at your own institution. For example, for Dr. Manning, that was through the local Woodruff Leadership Academy. Things like how to give feedback, how to build a curriculum, how to do um, the grand rounds and how to prepare your slides. If you want to be an effective teacher, you need leadership skills. You need to know how to command a crowd. You need to know how to rock the mic when the mic is handed to you. And one thing in our Woodruff Leadership Academy that we were taught was uh, we had these drills on giving elevator pitches. And that that has helped me so much. Anytime you get an opportunity to do faculty development 
Even if it's a small institutional faculty development, that can be a game changer. These professional development programs vary significantly from institution to institution, but are most often built to supplement someone already along a career path, if that's medical students, attendings, and everyone in between, without extending it. On the other hand, a formal fellowship or master's degree requires more rigorous training, and it might require you to prolong your training time. The purpose of medical education fellowships and med ed masters that really focus on the practical aspects of teaching will give you access to frameworks and a systematic way to think about innovation and about teaching and assessment. Uh, and th they do this also in an intensive way that it's hard to do by just professional development seminars alone. If you're very serious about having a career in medical education, then a fellowship or a master's will get you a long way towards thinking about it in a systematic way. I hadn't heard it put together that way before. A master's or fellowship really teaches you how to think. Think in a structured and rigorous way. And looking into programs a bit more, I do have to add a caveat. Not all formal training is the same. Some of these programs are more of a focus on research, while others are more about maximizing hands-on teaching skills, and some are a combination of both. Just a quick word from our sponsor, we all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. So, so far, we spent some time going over advice for medical education careers, but we would be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the challenges. You're sort of looking for the dark side of medical education, right? We did go digging for the unique challenges in this field. The first challenge is the multiple hats that educators can wear, but do so with very limited time. Educators are trying to be clinicians, probably educational leaders or administrators at the same time, and teach and do scholarship and be role models. And not that nobody else is trying to be a role model, but I feel like the plight of the medical educator is much more multi-pronged because it involves teaching. The key to success to be a medical educator and to climb to the top would sometimes mean not having hobbies or a family or all the things that actually enrich your life. Uh, it is really hard for the clinical and or the administrative work not to just overwhelm you. There's this idea of sweat equity in academic medicine. You have to prove yourself. 
And that gets compounded in medical education when you're trying to juggle your projects with clinical and administrative work. I think we've long passed an era where you would get protected time just to publish and just to do projects that aren't tied to a grant. But I think one way to make it count twice is to figure out, are there administrative aspects of my job that are publishable? So say you have to do a lit review because you're on a committee. Well, is that maybe a seed for scoping review or something like that? Or maybe you have to get an environmental scan of what other people are doing across the country. Well, maybe you should do a national survey. That forward-thinking mentality to make things count twice is harder said than done. It's so easy to just do tasks and not think, could I turn this into a workshop? Could I create an assessment and then publish this? That proactive planning can go a long way, especially since getting promoted as a clinician educator isn't as straightforward. You know, one aspect of that is that it's hard to get promoted as a medical educator. I think it's such a diverse field that your standard metrics for career advancement aren't clear. Right. It's one thing to say that the coin of the realm is peer-reviewed publications. Obviously, you can do that in med ed. But then how do you show dissemination and impact when the venue for that is teaching? So I give a lot of talks, but who's to say what impact any of those talks have on people? It's really hard for me to measure that. Whereas if I were a researcher, then I might see my paper picked up or somebody might change their clinical practice or their diagnostic approach because of what I did. And those are easier to measure than me giving a talk about feedback. It's hard to chase down those metrics. And I can see that for such a heterogeneous field, how hard it is to define what impact is for the purpose of promotion. And on top of that, the hard truth is that academic centers are also businesses. You get research grants that are indirect to the institution. There's nothing like that for medical educators. We're a cost center. And it takes a long-sighted institution to say, this will pay off in the future. No one is gonna pay me to explore something that doesn't feed back to the institution. So you just have to learn to figure out how to balance that. Medical educators in general don't think with this kind of business mindset. You know, we assume that the investment in teaching and innovation is worthwhile, but that payoff is indirect for these academic corporations who might choose to invest more in a direct payoff, such as patient care. It also depends on the priorities of the institution. You could imagine that an academic medical center wants to become a powerhouse in med ed research, then set up the infrastructure be proud of the grants and the scholarship that arises from that. Not every institution is in a place where they can expend that many resources to create a med-ed research powerhouse because it, it just may not feel like it's in line with their clinical or their research mission. And so the takeaway is to research the institution, especially before applying for jobs. If you care about promotion, research what counts for promotion and what doesn't. Find out what's important to the department leadership. Do they value teaching and mentoring or only care about peer-reviewed publications? And so with all the challenges that come with medical education careers, it makes me wonder, why are so many still drawn to it? When I um, looked for jobs, I looked for things that sort of nourished 
my ings, if you will. So my ings are the things that fill me back up, teaching, explaining, motivating, um, creating. And even on days when Dr. Manning was really busy, she still found ways to nourish her ings. All teaching doesn't look like you on a whiteboard drawing an algorithm or having a PowerPoint, right? Um, sometimes it is just as simple as you standing at the bedside talking to a patient and getting their history in front of the student. Sometimes it's just, um, you know, standing in the hallway, talking to the nurse, trying to troubleshoot a situation with a patient who wishes to leave against medical advice. And so I, I've gotten very metacognitive about that. I start to like really think about this. That was a teachable moment. Um, and so then I will actually go and unpack it with the students. And that's how I get my refill. I really appreciate hearing Dr. Manning speak about how intentional she is in recognizing the teaching moments. On those never-ending stints on the wards, what can it look like if you examine it from a teaching lens? Sometimes it's those small epiphanies in your learners that can go a long way. I, I was just thinking recently about what is the ratio of appreciation to frustration on those really hard clinical days. If the amount of pain to gratitude is too high, then it's really hard to gain any kind of job satisfaction from that. So we have to find ways to experience gratitude from the people that we work with. It's just easier for learners to express, wow, I'm so thankful that you taught in that way. I'm so glad that you gave me that feedback. And there's a lot of gratitude in medical education, which, if I had to guess, is why people love it so much. So I think some of the issues around the concept of career advancement is that you're truly advancing, that you're getting to the next academic rank or you're getting to the next leadership position. And I think that's actually not necessarily the goal. It's really about professional vitality. I had never heard of professional vitality. I think of professional vitality as that which makes you alive in your job, the kind of thing that helps you get up in the morning and want to run to work, the things that give you a runner's high at work. I mean, I think that professional vitality is what we should be seeking rather than career advancement. So much of the hidden curriculum just reinforces careerism, getting to some externally imposed next step. Why don't we talk more about this and what will sustain us professionally? Forget like how many papers, how many posters or whatever. If you can get to a place where you are fulfilled with what you are doing as a medical educator on a daily basis, that is a really great goal to work toward. Because there will come a point where you will get promoted and then you'll be sitting there like, well, now what? Which is what happened to me this year. I'm like, I spent my whole like medical career like, I got to get this on my CV so I can get promoted to associate professor. I got to get this paper done so that I can build my national reputation so I can become a professor. Then I became a professor and I'm just like sitting there like I met the Wizard of Oz. Like, well, now what do I do? <laughs> so, so the sooner that you realize that these promotions faces, they are good and they are helpful, but ultimately you need to be aiming really for fulfillment and meaningful influence and impact. Impact for the sake of impact, not impact for the sake of that's going to look good on your CV. Hearing that feels so validating. It makes a career in med ed much less intimidating. Focus on what fulfills you and is meaningful. With that, we'll leave the last word with Dr. Manning sharing her story and her biggest advice. I mean, I guess the only thing that I'll say is that 
you you have to uh, know who you are. When I was getting ready to start medical school, you know, I was really nervous about going from one historically black college to a historically black medical school. I was telling my dad, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I should have gone to like a, you know, a majority school and it's going to make it harder for me. And my dad was like, you know, those who are, are willing to work toward being great will be great, period. Um, so I, I think that that started to instill in me believing that what I have to say is worth somebody hearing. If you want to be a clinician educator, if you want to be a medical educator, you have to believe that when you prepare a talk and open your mouth, that what you have to teach is worth somebody listening to, period. And that's where leadership development and all that comes in. And if you constantly are, are self-deprecating and you are always thinking that somebody else should talk instead of you, um, when you've prepared, then you sell yourself short. So you must prepare, but once you have prepared, you know, you have to get in the corner and shadow box and say, you know what, I'm about to crush this. And then have somebody watching you so that if you think you crushed it and you didn't crush it, they can say, you didn't crush it or you crushed it, but this is how you would crush it even more. And then you take that and you apply it and then you come in and you do it again. But that, that is ultimately, I think, the place where people sell themselves short. They're waiting for somebody to give them permission to be great. And, and, and you don't, don't wait for that. Give yourself permission to be great. Because the minute that you do, you're going to work at it. And that's what you're going to be, is great. And if somebody cares about you and is mentoring you, then they, they, will, they will help you um, to keep fine-tuning the very best version of you who nobody else can be. Nobody can be a better version of you. Than, no, I can't be the best version of you. So if, if you are aiming for that and not aiming to be like me, like this person, like, like aim to be the best version of you because nobody can copy that. And I, I think that's my big advice. And that is a wrap for today's episode. If you found it helpful, please share it with your colleagues. Give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. A big thank you to Dr. Michael Shen, who skillfully produced this episode behind the scenes, did the audio editing, and was just an excellent coach. Thank you to Priyal Patel for the accompanying graphic in the show notes, especially because it goes over some things we didn't get a chance to cover, like potential leadership trajectories. And thank you our listeners. Uh, as always, we love to hear feedback. So tweet us, uh, send us a message on Facebook or email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. As always, opinions are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Thank you and take care. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.